0: Starlight, A Retreat Guide for Advent on the Three Wise Men Introduction
1: The journey of the three wise men who followed a star to Bethlehem, a journey which the entire Church celebrates on the Solemnity of Epiphany as the culmination of the liturgical seasons of Advent and Christmas, is like a living parable. The core of the parable is the Magi's journey, The Magi undertook a journey to encounter God. And isn't that what every Christian life is in its essence? A journey to the definitive encounter with God? Isn't each one of us traveling through the vicissitudes of life, making our way towards God's eternal throne, where we hope to be welcomed once and for all into the everlasting and totally fulfilling life of heaven, of perfect and uninterrupted communion with God? This is what the Bible means when it refers to Christians as aliens and sojourners in this world. This is what Christian spirituality throughout the ages means when it calls Christians pilgrims and our time on earth a pilgrimage of faith toward eternal happiness. This retreat guide, Starlight, a retreat guide on the three wise men, will dig into this living parable, seeking wisdom to help us along our own Christian journey. In the first meditation, we will consider the star that guided the three Magi to Jesus. In the second meditation, we will focus on some difficulties the Magi encountered along the way. And in the conference and personal questionnaire, we will examine one way that we, just like the Magi, can offer our own treasures and gifts to Jesus as an act of worship, even while we are still in the middle of our journey. To begin, take a few minutes to turn your attention to God's presence. He is with us right now, gazing at us with love. Let's renew our faith in that love, and let's open our hearts to receive whatever that love wants to give us. When you're ready, we will start our first meditation by simply reading through the Gospel passage in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn King of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising, and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king they set out, and behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them, until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house they saw the child with Mary his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way.
0: First Meditation, The Star of Bethlehem. Introduction
1: The catalyst that set the Magi's journey in motion was the mysterious star that appeared and somehow indicated that the promised King of the Jews, the King that many prophets had predicted would bring order and justice back to the world, had been born. What was this star? Why did it mean so much to the Magi? And what meaning does it have for us? St. Matthew didn't record many details about this mysterious star. As a result, theologians, scholars, and skeptics have speculated to no end over the last 2,000 years about what it really was. The various theories fall into three categories. Some say that the whole story was just made up. These same people say the same thing about every other chapter in the life and mission of Jesus Christ. It's a prejudiced position, which doesn't really stand up under honest scholarly scrutiny, so we won't waste time refuting it. Others say that the star was a pure miracle, a brand new heavenly body that appeared and disappeared miraculously, whose sole purpose was to guide the Magi to Bethlehem. The third group of theories posits that the star of Bethlehem was a natural phenomenon, like a supernova, perhaps, whose appearance and timing were so extraordinary as to reveal to the Magi that the prophesied King of the Jews had been born. The Church has not defined any dogma explaining the nature of the star. It has preferred to focus on the spiritual and theological significance of the event as a whole. As a result, speculations continue to pop up, some more convincing than others. One recent theory belonging to an American lawyer and law professor, named Frederick Larson, is particularly interesting, and you can learn all about it at his website, www.bethlehemstar.com. St. Matthew only tells us that the Magi saw the star at its rising, and that it somehow communicated to them that the promised King of the Jews, the promised Savior of the world, had been born. Why would a star be able to alter these men's lives so significantly? Why would God have chosen to use a star to speak to them of the Savior? To answer those questions, we need to reflect a little bit on who these Magi were.
0: Why did the Star of Bethlehem mean so much to the Magi?
1: St. Matthew doesn't tell us much about the Magi, either, but he tells us enough. First of all, they were not Jews. This is perhaps the most important thing from St. Matthew's perspective, because it verifies that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. Many biblical prophecies spoke about the Messiah attracting the presence and worship of foreign, non-Jewish people. In fact, part of the Messiah's mission was to extend the reach of God's saving promise beyond His chosen people of the Old Testament to create a worldwide chosen people of the New Testament, the Church. The Magi, the first non-Jewish worshippers of Jesus, began the fulfillment of that prophetic promise. Second, St. Matthew tells us that the Magi came from the East. Most likely, they were royal Chaldean scientists and scholars from the ancient city of Babylon. Ancient kingdoms and empires created and maintained groups of scholars as advisors to the throne. Five centuries before the time of Christ, When the Babylonian Empire conquered Judea, they actually brought some of the young Jewish scholars of the time to Babylon to become members of just such a team of advisors. Among the Jews taken into custody was the young prophet Daniel, who spent the rest of his life there in court of the various rulers of the turbulent empire. Some biblical scholars actually think that Daniel introduced Jewish knowledge into the Babylonian group of scholarly advisors and the Magi who came to Bethlehem were disciples of that ancient school. This could explain why their hearts were filled with anticipation and longing for the promised Messiah, King of the Jews, and why they undertook such a strange journey when the mysterious star arose and revealed that He had been born. Whatever the historic details actually were, these wise men from the East yearned so passionately for the coming of the Lord that as soon as they knew He had come, They set off to worship Him. What does the Star of Bethlehem mean for us? Since the Magi's experience is a living parable, it has a lot to tell us about our own spiritual journey. Maybe most importantly, it tells us that God wants to communicate with us, that he knows how to speak to us, to each one of us, in a language that we can understand. The Magi, like all scholars and scientists in the ancient world, studied the stars and the motions of the heavenly bodies with great detail. They believed that such things were somehow related to events on earth. By arranging for a special star to rise at the time of the Incarnation, God, in his infinite mercy and his infinite wisdom, stooped down to their level, To tell them about the birth of Jesus, he spoke to them in a language that they understood. He does the same with us. He speaks to our hearts through the beauty of nature, through the providential events of our lives, through art and literature and friendship, and every reality that occupies our attention. He speaks to us through the church, which preaches God's word and communicates God's grace in fresh ways in every generation. He really wants us to find Jesus, to discover the reality of his love and his presence, and he makes star after star rise on our horizons in order to lead us closer to him.
0: Conclusion Following the Star
1: How do we know when God is speaking to us, when He is making a star rise in our hearts? The surest clue is that deep interior joy, that stirring of the heart, that the Magi experienced when they saw the star. St. Matthew actually describes the Magi as being overjoyed at seeing the star. In the midst of our journey of faith, God touches us and guides us through the incomparable satisfaction that we taste deep in our hearts whenever we hear God calling there whenever we catch a glimpse of the starlight of God's love. The Magi yearned for more meaningful contact with God. And so, seeing the star, God's promise of an invitation to that contact filled them with joy. Our hearts, too, yearn for more meaningful contact with God because they yearn for true, lasting happiness, and that can only be found in God. Not in popularity, comfort, wealth, or achievements, but only in God. And so, whenever we hear His voice, whenever we see the star and feel its invitation, we also feel a deep interior joy, a yearning both sweet and sweetly painful that inspires us to continue forward on our journey. Haven't we all felt that before? Don't we all want to feel it again? Let's take some time now to remember the stars that God has used to guide us in our Christian lives so far to look for the star that he's giving us right now, and to ask him for the grace to always recognize and follow every star he sends us, just as the Magi did. The following questions and Bible passages may help your meditation.
0: Three questions for personal reflection or small group discussion. What language does God most often use to communicate to my heart? In other words, in what form does the Magi's star tend to appear in my life? How is the Star of Bethlehem a proof of God's love for this fallen world? How is it an indication of his love for me personally? God had placed in the Magi's hearts a yearning to meet the Savior, and that yearning was a preparation, almost a promise for the future event. What yearnings has God placed in my heart recently? Savor them as promises of future divine interventions. Four biblical passages to help your meditation. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Rise up in splendor, Jerusalem. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord shines upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick clouds cover the peoples. But upon you the Lord shines, and over you appears his glory. Nations shall walk by your light, and kings by your shining radiance. Raise your eyes and look about. They all gather and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters in the arms of their nurses. Then you shall be radiant at what you see. Your heart shall throb and overflow, for the riches of the sea shall be emptied out before you. The wealth of nations shall be brought to you. Caravans of camels shall fill you, dromedaries from Midian and Ephah, All from Sheba shall come bearing gold and frankincense, and proclaiming the praises of the Lord. Luke chapter one, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his prophets he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 through 6. For now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb, that Jacob may be brought back to him, and Israel gathered to him. I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is now my strength. It is too little, he says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and restore the survivors of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwell in the land of gloom, the light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing, as they rejoice before you as at the harvest, as people make merry when dividing spoils. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, and the rod of their taskmaster, you have smashed, as on the day of Midian. For a child is born to us, a son is given us. Upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. From David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice, both now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Second Meditation, Troubles
1: Along the Way, Introduction In the ancient world, traveling from Babylon to Bethlehem was tough. The Magi couldn't just hop on a plane, or fill up the gas tank for a comfy road trip. They would have had to travel overland, in some kind of caravan, maybe with camels or donkeys, and it would have taken an extended period of time, weeks if not months. But starting out on their journey wasn't the only difficulty they faced. Two other hardships made their trip into a troubled pilgrimage. Taking some time to reflect on them will help us face similar hardships in our own pilgrimage of faith. The first difficulty they faced was the disappearing star. When they saw the star arise, they knew that it signaled the birth of the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews, and they decided to go and meet him. So they set out for the obvious destination, the only logical place where a king of the Jews could be found, the holy city of the Jews, their religious and political capital, Jerusalem. At this point, it seems that the star itself wasn't directly leading them. We know this because St. Matthew later points out that they were overjoyed when the star reappeared to guide them to Bethlehem. But when they finally arrive at the holy city, things don't go according to their plans. Nobody else knows about the newborn king. No one is talking about him. He is not there. The Magi expected to find a royal family with a new child in a city warmed by the presence of a long-awaited savior. Imagine their surprise when they entered the city gates and made their first inquiries and the residents gave them only a puzzled look in response. They seemed to have arrived at their expected destination, but all they found was confusion and disappointment. Without realizing it, they had allowed their own expectations to carry them away, in a sense. Now they needed to readjust those expectations by a closer examination of God's designs. Only after stirring up the whole city, St. Matthew tells us that both King Herod and the rest of Jerusalem were greatly troubled by the Magi's inquiry. And engaging in a thorough investigation, did God intervene again, making the star reappear to lead them to the newborn king. So many times we encounter the same difficulty. So many times we have an authentic experience of God. We truly hear His voice. We get a real glimpse of starlight. And we respond generously and sincerely, setting out on a new phase in our pilgrimage of faith, only to find that our merely human expectations got the better of us, that we hadn't fully understood all that God was telling us. When that happens, We need to do exactly what the Magi did. Keep inquiring. Go to the scriptures. Go to the custodian of the scriptures, the church. Courageously search for how to continue responding to God's will. And when the time is right, when our inquiry has had the effect that God wishes on the Herods and Jerusalems of the world, the star will reappear to guide us onward. In fact, Christ himself promised that this would be the case. He told his disciples, Seek, and you will find. For the one who keeps on seeking always finds. The Long Way Home The Magi had to face a second major difficulty. This one showed up after they thought they had reached their goal. They made their way to Bethlehem, found Jesus in his mother's arms, and joyfully worshipped him by offering their treasures, precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At that point, deeply content, they surely thought that their quest was complete, their journey was a success. But God had a different idea. He had more for them to do, to experience, and to suffer. Because they had become subjects and friends of Christ, the newborn king... They had also made new enemies. Any enemy of Christ was now their enemy as well, and King Herod had made himself into an enemy of Christ. He feared that a newborn king of the Jews would usurp his power and disrupt his plans. So instead of welcoming Jesus, Herod sought to destroy him. We know from other historical sources that this Herod was a bloody and unscrupulous tyrant, He was expecting the Magi to report back to him after finding Jesus. But the Magi were warned in a dream not to do so. Imagine their conversation after that dream. Imagine what a risk it would be for them to not report back to Herod. Surely Herod had informants everywhere. Their departure from Bethlehem would be noticed. If they didn't come back to Jerusalem to report, Herod would pursue them. If he caught them, what would happen? It was not a pleasant consideration. It seemed that their journey was not quite as over as they thought. In the end, the Magi obeyed God's warning and protected the newborn king, putting their own lives at risk. But to do so, St. Matthew tells us, they had to depart for their country by another way. They had to take another way home, a longer way, an unfamiliar way, a riskier way. Instead of their adventure coming to an end after their joyful encounter with Jesus, it was just beginning. And the same thing is true in our pilgrimage of faith. So often we have a powerful experience of God, like the Magi, and we think that we have arrived at full Christian maturity, that it will be smooth sailing from now on. And then, the next day, or the next moment, we find ourselves threatened and pressured and even attacked by some new Herod. We find ourselves moved to continue a difficult pilgrimage, led along an unfamiliar and risky path, instead of the easier one we already know. Asked to continue putting up with the discomforts and injustices of a fallen world in spite of having discovered and encountered and worshipped the world's Redeemer. Whenever we find ourselves in that situation, we need to follow the example of the Magi, trusting in God's providence, obeying His voice, taking the risk of being faithful to our friendship with Christ, even if it means laying our lives on the line. Conclusion. A Seasonal Journey. The Magi's life-changing journey following the star is indeed a living parable for our lifelong journey of faith. But it's also a particularly appropriate guide for our littler journey through the liturgical seasons of Advent and Christmas, During these seasons, God wants us to experience afresh the joy that comes from seeing the star of His loving and faithful presence in our lives. And to do that, we have to leave aside anything that may be holding us back, whether discouragement at disappointed expectations, or fear of the risks involved in being faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. Let's take a few minutes now to contemplate these two difficulties that the Magi faced and overcame. And let's ask our Lord to give us enough light and strength to overcome them too. The following questions and Bible passages may help your meditation.
0: Three questions for personal reflection or group discussion. When was the last time my expectations didn't line up perfectly with God's plans? How did I react and why? The Magi welcomed Christ's lordship over their lives and submitted to it, while Herod resisted and tried to destroy it. Why did they react so differently? What types of situations tend to bring out my inner Herod, my inner Magi? How often did the Magi think about their destination while they were following the star? How often do I think about the final destination of my pilgrimage of faith? How often should I think about it? Three Biblical Passages to Help Your Meditation Psalm 37, verses 3-7 through Trust in the Lord and do good, that you may dwell in the land and live secure. Find your delight in the Lord, who will give you your heart's desire. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. And make your righteousness shine like the dawn your justice like noonday. Be still before the Lord, wait for him. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. Be kind to your servant that I may live, that I may keep your word. Open my eyes to see clearly the wonders of your law, I am a sojourner in the land, do not hide your commandments from me. At all times my soul is stirred with longing for your judgments. With a curse you rebuke the proud who stray from your commandments. Free me from disgrace and contempt, for I keep your testimonies. Though princes meet and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Judith chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 and 26 through 27. Who are you to put God to the test today, setting yourselves in the place of God and human affairs? And now it is the Lord Almighty you are putting to the test, but you will never understand anything. You cannot plumb the depths of the human heart or grasp the workings of the human mind. How then can you fathom God, who has made all these things, or discern his mind or understand his plan? No, my brothers, do not anger the Lord our God. Do not impose conditions on the plans of the Lord our God. God is not like a human being to be moved by threats, nor like a mortal to be cajoled. So while we wait for the salvation that comes from him, let us call upon him to help us, and he will hear our cry if it pleases him. Besides all this, let us give thanks to the Lord our God for putting us to the test as he did our ancestors. Recall how he dealt with Abraham and how he tested Isaac and all that happened to Jacob in Syria and Mesopotamia while he was tending the flocks of Laban, his mother's brother. He has not tested us with fire as he did them to try their hearts, nor is he taking vengeance on us. But the Lord chastises those who are close to him in order to admonish them. conference investing our treasures introduction
1: the magi brought their treasures to jesus they offered to the lord what was most valuable to them this was their great act of worship their way of responding to god's call and entering into a personal relationship with god that personal relationship with God, what the Catechism calls to live in communion with God, gives our lives the meaning we long for. The deeper that communion goes, the deeper our experience of meaning and fulfillment. One way to make our communion with God deeper and stronger is to follow this example of the Magi, to offer our treasures, what is most valuable to us, to Jesus. Jesus himself calls us to do so in one of his most memorable parables. The Parable of the Talents. In this parable, we discover a comforting truth, namely, that everything we do in life, and that means everything, not only praying and going to Mass, can become an act of worship and a means for growing closer to God. In this conference, we will take some time to understand this parable more fully. We will look at four aspects. First, its context, where it appears in the Gospels. Second, its central meaning, its core message. Third, how it can apply to our lives. And fourth, a dangerous misinterpretation of this parable. The Parable of the Talents It will be as when a man who was going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him in reply, You wicked, lazy servant! So you knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter? Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have got it back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth.
0: The context of the
1: parable. The parable of the talents appears in two Gospels, Matthew chapter 25 and Luke chapter 19. In both cases, Jesus tells the parable at the end of his public ministry during the days immediately preceding his passion. Both versions follow a similar structure. There is a king who has to leave his kingdom for an extended period of time. Before leaving, he entrusts a good amount of wealth to his servants so they can make use of it during his absence. When the king returns, each of his servants gives a report on how they invested their money, and each one receives a reward for doing so. Only one servant doesn't receive a reward. The servant who hid his money instead of investing it instead of making use of it. That's the basic structure of the parable. In St. Matthew's Gospel, this parable is one of three parables having to do with the final judgment, and he emphasizes the importance of keeping that judgment in mind as we go through our daily lives, so as to keep our priorities straight. In St. Luke's Gospel, the parable emphasizes that Jesus doesn't establish a political kingdom, but a kingdom of grace, which will grow and spread through the work of the Church until His second coming. This is the basic context of the parable, and it will be important to keep that context in mind as we dive into exploring what it means for us.
0: The Core Message of the Parable
1: All of Christ's parables have a core message, but it's usually a message so rich in meaning that it can't be completely explained in just one or two statements, and that's precisely why he used parables. In this case, the core message has to do with the relationship of the servants to the king and how that relationship is affected by the servants' activities. Three aspects of that relationship are especially noteworthy. In the first place, the king wants his servants to be involved in building up his kingdom. He actually leaves his kingdom in their hands, entrusting it to them in a certain sense, He gives them a share of his wealth and gives them the freedom to use it however they see fit in order to increase the overall wealth and prosperity of the kingdom. This shows how much he values his servants, how he treats them with dignity and respect, how he wants them to be partners in defending and caring for his kingdom. In the second place, the king rewards his servants superabundantly, out of all proportion to their actions. St. Matthew has the king saying to his servant, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come share your master's joy. St. Luke has the king specify what those great responsibilities are. He puts his servants in charge of various cities, according to how much each servant increased the king's wealth during his absence. Here we see God's hope and dream for each one of us. He wants us to enter into his joy and to take part in his own divine activity of governing the universe. In other words, God wants to make us sharers in his own divine nature for all eternity. At the end of the parable, the distinction of roles between the good servants and the king almost disappears. The servants are elevated to the level of the king himself. This is their reward for faithfully administering the king's gifts during his absence. In the third place, we see how the actions of one servant cut him off from the kingdom, destroying his relationship with the king. St. Matthew shows the king calling this servant wicked and lazy, and St. Luke's version calls him simply wicked. In both versions, the servant is punished and excluded from the rewards given to the others. The wicked servant didn't put to use the wealth he had received from the king. Instead, he went and hid it. He buried it in the ground. And so when the king returned, the wicked servant didn't have any profit to show from the wealth he had received. He gives explanations and makes excuses, but the king doesn't accept them. He tells the servant that he should have invested the wealth he had received. He should have put it to work for the benefit of the kingdom. That's what servants are supposed to do. Because he didn't, because he kept it for himself alone, he is excluded from the kingdom and thrown into the darkness outside. We can see from these three aspects that the king involves his servants in the work of building up his kingdom, that he rewards his servants by giving them a greater participation in his own life and in his kingdom, and that those who refuse to invest in his kingdom will be excluded from it, that the relationship between the king and his servants is mediated, at least in part, through the servants' activities. In other words, the servants who receive the king's gifts and use them generously For the good of the kingdom and not just for their own personal good, actually deepen their relationship, their friendship, with the king.
0: Applying the parable to
1: our own lives. And that is exactly the key point to pay attention to when we want to apply this parable to our own lives. The king in the parable is Christ himself. The servants are you and me and all members of the church. The money that the king gave his servants stands for all the gifts that God has given to us, especially the supernatural gifts like faith and grace, but also all our natural talents and opportunities and even our sufferings, everything that comes to us from God's providence. The extended period of the king's absence stands for the entire age of the church, between Christ's ascension into heaven and his second coming when the final judgment will take place. And the message Jesus wants us to hear is that what we do with the gifts we have received during however much time is allotted to us here on earth really matters. Our lives, and so all of our gifts, have a true, meaningful purpose. We are created and called to live in communion with God in relationship with Him. And how we administer our God-given gifts can either foster or frustrate that relationship. He is the King, the Lord of the universe, but He wants us to be part of His royal court, to participate in His work of salvation, to share in His life and in His joy. But He won't force us to do that. He gives us a choice every day. We can keep the gifts we have received to ourselves, like the wicked and lazy servant of the parable, or we can take those gifts and invest them so as to increase the wealth of Christ's kingdom. And the wealth of Christ's kingdom is measured in terms of love, love for God and love for neighbor. So the message for us is simple. In order to grow in our relationship with God, the only relationship that will give us the lasting fulfillment we yearn for, we have to invest our gifts in actions of love, of self-giving and self-forgetful generosity towards God and neighbor. This is one of the ways we bring our treasures, all that we are and all that we have received, to the feet of Jesus, and worship him, just as the three wise men did.
0: Conclusion A Dangerous Misinterpretation
1: Before moving on to the personal questionnaire, we have to pause to point out a dangerous misinterpretation of this parable. It is possible, especially when we are still at the beginning of our spiritual journey, to interpret this parable through the lens of our own insecurities. Because we live in a fallen world, and because we are fallen human beings, wounded by our own sins and by the sins of others around us, we have a deep-seated tendency to doubt our self-worth, to doubt that we can actually be lovable. When we allow this insecurity to dictate our behavior, We find ourselves trying to earn the love of others, trying to become worthy of being loved through our achievements or some other activity. This is not a healthy way to live, because it is built on a false foundation. In God's eyes, we already are lovable, infinitely lovable, in fact, in spite of our flaws and failings and wounds, and even our sins. This is the radical, wild message of the gospel, that, as St. Paul put it, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the parable, this comes across clearly if we're willing to look. The king already shows his interest in his servants and his concern for them before they do or achieve anything. The servants actually have no wealth of their own that attracts the king, they receive all their wealth from the king because of his devotion to them. And this is our case in relation to God. All that we are, all that we have, life, hope, the earth, faith, friendship, every good thing that exists is a gift from God, a sign of his total love for us and dedication to us. And so when the king goes away and gives his servants a chance to invest their gifts for the good of his kingdom, he is not withholding his love from them until they prove themselves worthy, On the contrary, He is showing His love for them and hoping that they will return His love with their love, that they will respond to the gifts they've received from Him by giving of themselves to Him in return, thereby allowing their relationship to grow, to reach a new level. This is simply how friendship works. It grows when both friends invest themselves in things that matter to both of them. God, in giving us so many gifts and inviting us to use those gifts to build up his kingdom is giving us a chance to do just that, to choose to make what matters to God matter also to us, and so deepen our friendship with him. We don't have to earn God's love. We just have to welcome it. Take some time now, without rushing, to prayerfully reflect on the ten questions in the personal questionnaire which is designed to help you see new ways to grow in your friendship with the Eternal King.
0: Personal Questionnaire Make a list of all of the natural gifts that I have received from God's goodness, especially the ones that mean the most to me, and thank him for them. Make a list of all of the supernatural gifts, gifts having to do with Christian faith and life in the church, that I have received, especially the ones that mean the most to me, and thank him for them. Of all these gifts, which ones are my unique ones? Ones that most other people don't have. Jesus wants to be able to say to me at the end of my life, come, share your master's joy. Use my imagination to think about what that might mean and what that might be like. What may have been some of the difficulties that the servants face during the king's absence? How do those relate to the difficulties that Christians face during this age of the church, before Christ's second coming? What may have motivated the wicked, lazy servant to keep his gift for himself, instead of investing it for the good of the larger kingdom? Why do I sometimes hesitate to invest my gifts for the good of Christ's kingdom? Think about the times I have put my gifts to the use of God's kingdom in the past. What happened? How did it make me feel and why? Think about the times I have kept my gifts to myself, preferring to keep them safe rather than to risk losing them. What happened? How did it make me feel and why? How can I better invest the gifts God has given me for the good of his kingdom Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten me about this. What situations or circumstances make me doubt that God can really love me? How do I usually react to those doubts? How would God prefer me to react? Please tell us how we can improve future retreat guides by giving us your feedback at rcspirituality.org. If you liked Starlight, a retreat guide for Advent on the Three Wise Men, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. Regnumchristi.org, legionofchrist.org. Retreat guides are produced by Coronation, coronationmedia.com